that glorifies you. Please be with Stephen today as he preaches, that he might speak the truth and that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts to make us see where we need to change. Please give us the courage to change, to live lives that please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first reading is from Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. Do good to your servant, according to your word, Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And the second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food... They think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple... Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Morning, everybody. Uh, We are continuing, indeed, in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're reading together through a section of the letter in which Paul addresses concerns in that church, the church in Corinth, concerns that they themselves have raised with Paul. Uh, Back in chapter 7, Paul began with, now to the things that you wrote about. So he's probably um, settling disputes and arguments, arguments and disputes possibly that are threatening or or, uh, have already divided the church. 
and we've just spent three weeks looking together essentially at the topic of sexuality and marriage, chapter 7. So today we start a whole new section. The topic under consideration is announced in chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. It may not be obvious when we open our Bible and read chapter 8. It may not be open because our Bibles are broken into chapters, into paragraphs, into sections, and there's, there's subheadings and so on and so forth. It may not be obvious. Now, Paul, when he starts talking about this topic, now about food sacrificed to idols, it may not be obvious that he's not done talking about this topic till he gets all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. He has a lot to say about this topic. So he's not done, and we're not done. But we'll just look at chapter 8 for today. But what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. Christians in Corinth are going to pagan temples and eating meat sacrificed to idols. And here's Paul's answer. Don't. That's it. Don't. The Christians in Corinth are not free to do this. It's sin. And it is sin. In fact, even before the church in Corinth, it was even planted, even before it was founded, Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem. They took time out from mission to go to Jerusalem to settle the question of Gentile believers in Jesus, converts to to faith in Christ who weren't Jews. What do we do with them? And everybody at that conference, everybody at that council agreed Gentile believers would indeed be asked to steer clear of meat sacrificed to idols. And just so we are sure about this, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, speaking to the churches of Pergamon and Thyatira, condemns those teachers who teach that it is okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. Revelation 2, 14 and 20. But even though the issue is actually quite clear-cut, don't, Paul takes a long time to get to his answer, don't. Which actually doesn't appear in absolute terms until we're well into chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. So unlike chapter 5, wherein Paul's response to sin in the church is a sharp, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. No, no, here actually there's sin in the church, but he takes them slowly and carefully through a whole series of issues. And here's a mud map of his argument. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, stating the problem as the Corinthians see it, he then talks about the supremacy of love and conscience in decision-making. So let's label the section that we're going to look at today as love and conscience. Then in chapter 9, verses 1 to 23, with that in mind, Paul sees that they need to rethink the whole area of rights, responsibilities, and freedom. We can call this section rights and freedom. Chapter 9, verses 24 through to chapter 10, verse 13, Paul also sees that with respect to this issue, they need to rethink the whole area of temptation. So let's call this understanding temptation. Moving towards his conclusion in chapter 10, verses 14 to 22, 
Paul sees that the Corinthians have a naive, indeed dangerously naive, view of what it means to participate in a sacred meal. So he teaches them about the spirituality of sacred meals. And indeed, if you're unsure about why it is such a bad thing to eat meat sacrificed in idols, well, actually, this is the section that answers it clearest, uh, why it is dangerous, why we are not free to do this. And finally, Paul, in the light of all of his arguments, is ready to make some conclusions. And Paul does that, chapter 10, verse 23, through to 11, verse, sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. He does that by restating the issue and then giving some directives, some guidelines that he expects them to obey on the issue of food sacrificed to idols. And perhaps Paul took such a long time to consider this issue and all the ins and outs of this question because the issue actually meant a very great deal might surprise us, and we might find it hard to imagine, but this issue meant a very great deal to everyone in the church in Corinth. Now, for for some of, of our brothers and sisters back then in the church in Corinth, for some of them, perhaps believers in Jesus of Jewish background, those who'd grown up attending one of the synagogues in the city of Corinth, there could for them be nothing more repugnant or, or, or offensive than, 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 than eating meat sacrificed to idols. It is inconceivable um, um, to them. In fact, it is conceivable to us that, to, to know that actually some of these people, some of their great-grandparents or grandparents may have lost their lives when they refused to eat meat sacrificed to idols back in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. For in the second century BC, when the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes ruled over Judea, he tried forcing all Jews to renounce their faith as part of his campaign to make the whole world Greek. From uh, the book of Maccabees, sitting in a certain place with his counselors and armed soldiers standing around him, the tyrant, Antiochus, ordered the bodyguards to drag over each one of the Hebrews and force them to taste pork and meat sacrificed to idols. But if any of them were unwilling to eat the abominable meats, they were to be turned on the wheel of torture and killed. So then, for these Christians, it would have been more than obvious that eating such meat was abominable. But for others in the church, especially those who'd grown up as as Gentiles, that is, as non-Jews, it would have been exactly the opposite. For goodness sake, what's the problem? All across the Roman Empire, across what today we'd call the Greco-Roman world, towns and cities were peppered with temples and pagan sacred sites and sites dedicated to Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. What we might not appreciate now is that these temples were the center of all cultural, social, political, as well as religious life. For indeed, these things were indistinguishable in the ancient world. And by and large, 
meat in the ancient world was not slaughtered except in the context of some sort of religious sacrifice. To kill an animal in the ancient world without thanking either this god or that goddess, that would have been an unthinkable blasphemy. So then, for many of these Christians in the church in Corinth, Christians of Gentile background, they they would have grown up attending and playing within temple precincts. Temples were the places Corinthians went to eat and drink, relax, celebrate, and, to use a contemporary word, to party. Ancient Corinth had 26 recognized sacred sites and at least 12 temples surrounding the central marketplace, all dedicated to various Greek and Roman gods and goddesses and various lords, that is, uh, um, um, mystery cults. But chief amongst them was the temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty, passion, and pleasure. As adults, important civic events would take place in temples, and a position of standing or influence might routinely mean having to accept dinner invitations, civic dinners held in pagan temples. So, for example, uh, two invitations that have survived, actually of many, Nicephorus invites you to dine at a banquet of the Lord Seraphis in the birth house on the 23rd from the ninth hour. Or another invitation, the God summons you to a banquet being held in the, tho- in the tho- Arian tomorrow from the ninth hour. Uh, that, um, that we know from history that in the first three centuries AD, Christians, Christians did take Paul's teaching to point and they avoided pagan temples, we we know that that meant that they were figures of ridicule in the ancient world, contemptuously labeled antisocial atheists for their apparently inexplicable rejection of all community involvement. They didn't go to the temples. Back, though, in the middle of the first century, we can see that significant numbers of Christians, at least in Corinth, were indeed accepting such invitations and reclining, that is to say, dining in pagan temples, the temples of idols. At at the other end of the social scale, meat sacrificed to idols might actually be the only opportunity that poor people had to buy and eat meat. At festival times, there'd be a great glut of meat and it would be sold very cheaply the next day in the marketplace. Thus, for the rich and for the poor, to abstain from eating such meat would come with significant costs. And so their justification for eating such meat was appropriately detailed and well worked. And we know what their argument was because it's reflected back to us through Paul's letter to them. And it looked like this. Their argument was this. Hey, Paul, we know. We are not ignorant. We have superior knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing at all. It's a statue, for goodness sake. It's not a god. Isn't this precisely what the Old Testament teaches? 
the idols of the nations, the silver and gold. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but they cannot hear, etc., etc. In Christ, we have superior knowledge. We know that there is no God but one God, only one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, we know that food does not bring us any closer to God. We are neither better off nor worse off, spiritually speaking, for eating meat sacrificed to idols. And thirdly, I am a child of God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. I have the right to do anything. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. Therefore, I have every right to enter a pagan temple. Indeed, I have even more right than the pagans themselves. And to eat there, giving thanks in Jesus' name for whatever it is I receive. Now, the argument is sound. But that doesn't make it right. Paul wants them to rethink. And Paul begins in this chapter by making two points. Firstly, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Secondly, each of us, most, each of us must both anticipate and respect the conscience of other believers. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This isn't anti-intellectualism. Paul knows that, as the Old Testament teaches in so many different places, knowledge actually is a precious thing. This is not anti-intellectualism. But Paul does know that when a person thinks that they know more about something than others, then that's a very powerful driver of pride and conceit. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Or to, re or to rephrase that, the moment you think yourself wise, you're not. This is a temptation common to all, but perhaps most dangerous to those who are, by virtue of their job, in possession of superior knowledge. In all that I'm about to say, I apologize to any doctors and high school teachers present, and there's actually a few, so my apologies. Uh, but I have indeed, I confess, in the past I have sometimes accused doctors of being people who think they know everything. I paused to let one of them say, but we do. <laughs> and that hasn't happened, great, we'll move on. And high school teachers in particular I have sometimes accused of being unteachable. And there may be some truth in those slanders. But at the time, when I said such things, I think the force of my objection was almost certainly my own pride and conceit. The pride and conceit that comes from being used to being the teacher. Someone regularly labeled, if perhaps ironically, the Reverend Doctor. Knowledge is indeed a powerful driver of pride and conceit. On one or two occasions, I have found myself thinking haughty thoughts and looking down on others because they didn't know something, forgetting that actually I had only learned it two weeks earlier. <laughs> Knowledge is a powerful driver of pride and conceit, especially if, as pastor or doctor or lawyer or specialist or 
or, or consultant or teacher or whatever it is that you might do, your identity is formed in part or in whole by the function of knowing the right answer when others don't. But the person who thinks they know something has their eyes fixed on what it is that they know and indeed in that moment are unable to comprehend or measure their own ignorance, which is, of course, close to infinite. So then, um, here's a mathematical equation for the benefit of Blake. Um, <clears throat> I think what this means is the sum of all the things that I know divided by the sum of all things that I don't know is so close to zero, it's just not worth splitting hairs. This mathematically proves that I know nothing at all. But whoever loves God is known by God. As, as Christians, we sometimes boast that we know God and we boast that we've met Christ, and quite right too, from a certain point of view. But actually, biblically, the real joy that we ought to rejoice in is not that we know God, but rather that we are known by God. In other words, that we belong to him. That in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, we are claimed by him as his. That, that, that's what we should rejoice in. Hey, do you know that Jesus knows me? Well, Paul has demonstrated the superiority of love as the basis of decision-making to knowledge. And where this really comes into play is when we consider the conscience of others. Now, what is the conscience? The conscience is that part of our mind where right versus wrong is hardwired. Our consciences are formed in childhood, mostly, and they are difficult to reprogram. Not impossible, but difficult. Our conscience tells us what we think it is, is right or wrong, but the conscience itself generally makes little distinction between custom and morality. So then, for example, when my conscience tells me that it is morally wrong to wear a hat inside, it is mistaken. And when I feel guilty for wearing a hat inside because I think I'm being rude, that's just simply part of my upbringing. It's morally neutral to wear a hat inside. You'll all be relieved. Another thing about our conscience is that it is very difficult to rewrite. Not impossible, but it is difficult. People who have grown up in traditions or religions where pig meat, pork, ham, bacon, is labeled as unclean, they actually find it really, really difficult to eat that meat even many years after otherwise disassociating themselves from that tradition or from its teachings. The conscience once formed is only very slowly reformed. And the third thing about the conscience, which by now should be obvious, is that it is, it is highly valuable as a moral guide. Anyone who's been in pastoral ministry for any length of time knows that people can feel deep, shame and guilt over things that actually aren't wrong, all the whilst feeling no shame or guilt about things that are profoundly wicked and evil. The conscience is highly valuable. Paul, elsewhere, 
Uh, in Romans and in 2 Corinthians, Paul teaches about the conscience. He makes a point of trusting Jesus as his judge, not his own conscience, yet nevertheless teaches that we are on thin ice when we disobey our conscience. And thus, we are doing something very bad if we encourage others to disobey their conscience. In our text today, 1 Corinthians 8, Paul's point is that the argument presented to him the one I showed you earlier, we, we know that an idol is of, of no significance. We know that food does not bring us closer to God. We know that we are God's children. Paul doesn't say it's wrong. Rather, he says it's unloving. In verses 7 to 13, Paul sa says that when other Christians, perhaps, perhaps even Christians of, of Jewish origin, when, when they see you doing this, eating meat, sacrificed to idols within temple precincts, they'll be tempted to do the same thing. But in doing that, they'll be acting against their own conscience. And that is sin. Now, both the person who eats in the temple with a clean conscience and the person who eats in the temple with a guilty conscience, both of them are doing the wrong thing. But it'll be worse for the person who knowing it to be wrong, has given into temptation. That person will be considerably weakened by guilt and shame. Satan has a stronghold in their life that they'll need to deal with. Now, at this point in the argument, Paul allows the notion for the time being that Christians have the right to eat in pagan temples. He'll dismantle that notion later. But even so, even if we allow for them to have that right, even so, verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block in this context does not mean something that causes offense or scandal. No, a stumbling block means something that could potentially derail the faith of another Christian. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister, for whom... Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, you sin against Christ. Verse 11, for whom Christ died. For whom Christ died. This is Paul's reasoning. If Jesus died to save this person, if Jesus sacrificed, his entire life in order that this person might be forgiven, washed clean, and given eternal life. If Jesus sacrificed his entire life to lovingly save this person, how foolish of me, how evil of me to endanger this person's salvation because I refuse to sacrifice an invitation to a fashionable dinner party. Paul will speak more on rights in the next section, which we'll look at next week. So then, this text isn't about offending people, and it isn't about judging people. This text isn't about peripheral or debatable matters. And it would be a misuse of this text for some offended minority to try to force compliance on the whole community, compliance to their idiosyncrasies. 
Paul makes it clear in other places, like Romans 14, that with respect to debatable matters, matters ultimately of indifference, people within a community are to learn to live together in harmony with no group demanding their own behavior of others, and each person learning not to sit in judgment over others. So that's what this text isn't about. Here are two principles which I feel we can discern and prayerfully apply in our own lives. Firstly, the supremacy of love in ethical decision-making. To uh, paraphrase uh, Gordon Fee, the real concern of the passage needs a regular hearing in the church. Personal behavior is dictated not by knowledge, nor by freedoms, nor by rights, nor by law, but by love for those within the community of faith. Everything one does that affects relationships within the body of Christ should have care for sisters and brothers as its primary motivation. Knowledge has its place, but love builds up. Second, the principle of imitation. The fact that actually we all copy each other all of the time. And we often consider the behavior of other believers to be an effective guide as to what it means to follow Jesus. So if so-and-so can do it, why can't I? Why can't I? 